Hey there, welcome to the Rim Church Podcast. We're so glad you found us. The Rim Church is based in San Antonio, Texas, and we believe in loving Jesus, building family, and changing the world. Wherever you find yourself today, we trust that it is not by accident that you're listening to this message, and we believe that God has something to speak to you right where you are. For more information on what we're all about, go ahead and visit us at therim.church or follow us on Instagram and Facebook. We hope you enjoyed the message. Well, if you still have your Bible out, uh, I want you to kind of keep hanging out on page two of the scriptures. And we're going to continue in this sermon series through the book of Genesis that we're just calling uh, Genesis, um, the bigger story. And I encourage you that if you've missed any of the previous weeks, uh, to, to strong, man, I strongly recommend go back, grab the podcast, listen, because these are like episodes that are building on themselves. And we'll try to kind of catch you up, but there's a lot that you miss. And one of the number one questions that we're getting in this season is why Genesis? Why, why start there? Well, at its heart, Genesis is all about God. And it's about this God who takes the unlivable chaos and he creates space and order and beauty so that life can flourish. Like how, how good is that? that? That God takes the unlivable chaos and he creates space of order and beauty so that life can flourish. And understanding Genesis helps us understand the rest of this story. And that if we don't understand this, the rest of it, we're just getting pieces of it and we're trying to kind of like piece it together on our own and usually it's very confusing. And the opening pages of the Bible are much like the opening movements of a symphony. When we're given the core melodies that are going to be repeated and cycled through and reactivated as the story goes on and on. And in this series, what we're trying to do is to reframe and retell the story of the gospel in a new and fresh way from the very beginning. Because sadly, many of us, we've been taught a smaller and shrunken and skewed version of the gospel. And the gospel is a really, really big story. And we talked about that it really starts with this, this prologue. And in the prologue, we see that ultimately this story is all about God. It's his story, and it's huge, and it includes everything and should affect everything that we do and everything that we are. And the story begins in the beginning, where God made a good world, where humanity and the entire creation could flourish. But pretty quickly, the plot thickens, and humanity thinks that we have a better understanding of how things should be run down here, and the whole thing just begins to fall apart. And you don't have to watch the news very long or scroll through your, your social media feed before you're like, yeah, yeah, it, it's broken. It's really, really broken, which sets up the need for the hero. And this creator chooses a human family through whom he will enter into humanity to accomplish the rescue mission. And in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus, which we'll celebrate next weekend, the creator rescues the entire creation and then begins to restore it. And the final scene, the scene that you and I are in right now, is this scene of a new beginning. 
where the Creator is renewing human beings through grace, through the work of His Holy Spirit, and then he's, as He's beginning to restore His creation, one day there will be an ultimate restoration when Jesus returns. Church, it's a really, really big story that we've been invited into. And sadly, the vast majority of us are living in much smaller stories. In these last few weeks, we've talked about how we come to the Bible with our own cultural bias and presumptions. And we forget that this library of books was actually written to an ancient Near Eastern culture and people. And we have a tendency to approach this book, this library, like it's a Western history or science book. And the Bible oftentimes is not interested in answering the questions that we bring to it. And so we've talked about, just to kind of reframe this, uh, that there are really these two ways of thinking, that we think like Westerners because we are Westerners. But the Bible audience would have thought from an Eastern mindset. And we talked about how they ask different questions. Do you remember? Westerners, what are the questions that we ask? Do you remember? How and when. Yeah, yeah. That we want to know how, how did all this take place? How did Genesis break down? When did it happen? Was it 7,000 years ago? Was it 7 billion years ago? And the Bible's just not interested in answering those questions. Instead, it comes from an Eastern mindset where the questions are who and why. And so when we look at Genesis, these narratives aren't concerned with the when and how. They're trying to answer fundamental questions like, who are we? Where are we? Who is responsible for all of this? What's this whole thing even about? And we talked about that there's, you can look at it from a house story or a home story. And many of us, the Western mindset, we see this as a house story. And so we get concerned with the studs, the foundation, the pipes, the electricity. It's a house. It's, it's, the, it's the material parts of it. And we've been asking the question, what if it's not a house story where science determines the plot? What if it's a home story where God is inviting us that it's, it's not about the materials as much as it's about the space that you get to live out your story? And if that's true, then theology begins to give us the plot. And so it's this fundamental different ways of looking at it. And then two weeks ago, Lashad James taught, amazing job, bro, did an amazing job. And uh, yeah, you can, you can give him a round of applause. He, you've earned it. So good. I'm so proud of you. And, uh, and we learned that God primarily speaks to us as a community, Adam, humanity, mankind, and that it takes all of us, male, female, black, white, young, old, it takes all of us to put on display the image of God. And then I love that you guys got to teach the lesson, that the Spirit of God spoke to us as a community, and that we shared these things out loud, which made many of us feel very uncomfortable. Uh, and if I could just synthesize or sum up uh, what it was that I feel like we heard over and over again. It was something to this effect, and I wrote it down, that we collectively are called to create and cultivate spaces for people to discover and experience the beauty of Jesus. That, that, that's what you guys over and over begin to repeat collectively, some form or fashion. Like You heard that, and I'm just really proud 
that we're becoming a church that's actually sensitive to God's spirit and we're listening. That it's not just dependent on one person to hear God's voice, but that we hear it collectively as a community. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to build on this concept right here uh, that you guys kind of laid the foundation. That's going to set us up for Genesis 2. So you ready? So let's go. Here we go. Genesis chapter 2. We'll let's start in chapter 1. We see that there's that seven-day sequence of Genesis 1, which actually creeps into Genesis chapter 2, okay? Uh, they didn't do a good chapter break there. Um, and so it comes to close here in verse 3. And the concept of Genesis 1 was that we began with this chaotic, dark waters. Remember day 1? And then on day 2, God separates the waters from the waters. And then on day 3... The dry land emerges out of the water. Okay, now Genesis 2, there's this second narrative, and it's caused a lot of confusion. But here's what I want you to see. We don't have time to unpack why there's these two different units, but here's here's the point. Here's what I want you to see today, that we're going to see in this second narrative that it's going to shift the vantage point, and then it's going to zoom in on the dry land. And what we're going to focus in on is not the ordering of the cosmos, but on a God creating sacred space, a colony of heaven and earth where the divine and humans can cohabitate. That's his focus. Or, to put it another way, there's going to be a sacred space that's created for people to discover, experience, and enjoy the beauty of who God is. That's the focus. So in chapter 2, verse 4, we're told this. Peter just read it. It says, These are the records of the heavens and the earth concerning their creation. At the time that the Lord God made the earth and heavens, so no shrub of the field had yet grown on the land, and no plant of the field had yet sprouted, for the Lord God had not made it rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. So this new narrative unit begins immediately with four problems uh, dealing with the dry land. And here, here they are, okay? There's no shrub of the field. There's no plant of the field. So that, what he means by this is there's no food growing out there, and there's no farming happening in here, okay? Well, why? Well, because you need two things for plants to grow. You need rain. And you need humans to work the ground. Okay? So <clears throat> there's no plants out there in the wild, no farm plants, no rain, no humans. Well, we need, we need to fix this. So the narrative is going to one by one begin to solve these problems. So we're told here in verse 6, But mist would come up from the earth and water all the ground. Well, that's one of our problems, right? No rain. Well, there's water or mist coming from the ground. Now, what happens, and I want you to think about this. What happens when water comes up from the ground and mixes with dry land or dirt? What is it? You get mud. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, this is cool. Now, wait, 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 this. So now, all of a certain, sudden, we've got some clay. So what's the next thing that God does? Well, he begins to work with the clay. Verse 7, then the Lord God formed. It's the verb here, yetzar, which is a standard Hebrew biblical word, uh, which is what a potter would do at a potter's will. 
Okay, so God sits down, and he starts spinning the potter's wheel, and he forms Adam, mankind, out of the dust from the ground, and then he breathed the breath of life into his nostrils, and the man became a nephesh hayah, a living being. So now we've solved two of our four problems now, right? We've got water, and now we've got humans. I want to pause here because this is two more sermons in and of itself of what it means for God to form mankind. Here's the point. It's not focused in on the mechanisms of how he does it or how long he takes to do it, when and how. Instead, what the scripture is communicating, that God is the agent of creation, no matter how he chooses to do that. Okay, it's big. Okay, but once again, another sermon. So I just want you to see this. Now, we've got these two other problems. We've got plants. So let's fix that. Verse 8, the Lord God planted a garden in Eden and in the east, and there he placed the man he had formed. So watch this, okay? God plants a garden in the east in Eden. Now, Eden isn't a proper name. It's actually a standard Hebrew word that means delight. So God plants a garden in a space that he calls delight, okay? Now watch this, okay? I'm going to help this maybe draw this out a little bit, okay? So I want you to think about this. We've got this dry land here, right? And we're being told that there is a region called by a name called Eden. Now, is the whole land Eden? Well, no, just look at verse 8 and think about it. Is the whole land Eden? No, it's not. It says that in the east, so in the east, there's a region. And what's the name of that region? Eden or delight. So the Bible is starting to give us a map. So you've got this dry land, and then there's this super awesome space called Eden or delight. Okay, And it's, uh, it's a part of the land, but it's not all of it because it's in the east. You got it? Okay, now watch this. Let's keep going. It says that he planted a garden, okay, ooh, in Eden. Now watch this. All of a sudden, we've got multiple tiers of space here. We have dry land, and then we have a region of the dry land that's called delight, and within that region of delight, there's a garden, okay? Come on, this is going to get really just go with me. I promise this is going to be really cool in a second. You're like, oh, God, I've never seen this before. Big deal. Wait for it, okay? In verse 9, you remember that thing about no plants, right? Well, he's going to solve it really quick. So it says, The Lord God caused to grow out of the ground all kinds of trees, pleasing in appearance and good for food. That these trees were really good. They're good for the eyes, and they're good for eating. I wonder if trees that are beautiful to look at and desirable to eat are going to play any role into this story. Yeah, it is. So, and if you're new here, oh, it's so, you're, you have a blessing that you don't come in with all this baggage. Okay, so it says, in the middle of the garden was the tree of life and the tree of knowing good and bad. So you see... We've just been given a map right here. So we've got the dry land, 
And within the dry land, we have Eden, delight. And within Eden, there's a garden. And then there's what's kind of called the middle. Okay? And in the middle of the garden, uh, we have these trees. These two trees. Someone's trying to tell us something actually very, very important here. And like I said earlier, the opening pages of the Bible are much like this opening movement of a symphony that's giving us the core melodies that are going to be repeated and cycled through and reactivated as the story goes on and on. So right here, we see this multiple-tiered sacred space. And the place in the middle where the tree of life is placed, this is going to, like, and he's going to give us this warning about this other tree, the tree of knowing good and bad. And he says, in the day that you eat of this tree, you'll surely die. Like, it's going to kill you. So right in the middle of this sacred space, we have this life and death decision. And in verse 15, it says, And the Lord God took the man and placed him in the garden of Eden to work it and to watch over it. And so in this middle space is the area where Adam and Eve are going to be, where they're going to have that strange conversation with the snake, where God is going to show up and walk in the cool of the day with his walking buddies. So someone is trying to prepare the ground for us here. This idea of a three tiers of sacred space with the most sacred space being where the beauty of the divine and humans meet in the middle, okay? So now Adam and Eve are given a task of working and watching over this sacred space, or maybe to put it another way, their responsibility is to create and to cultivate a sacred space. Now, pause. Later on in the story, what role historically, or maybe whose job is it for the people of Israel to create and cultivate sacred spaces? Say it again. Out loud, say it again. Priest. The priest, okay. Ooh, this is good. Oh, man. It's the priest. It's the priest's responsibility to create and to cultivate sacred space for the people of Israel to get to experience the beauty of God. Okay, so watch this. Adam and Eve's primary job in the Garden of Eden is to be the royal priest of Eden. Okay, so Adam and Eve's role is to create and to cultivate and to care for the space for people to experience, discover, and enjoy the beauty of God. Does this sound familiar? Okay, starting to connect. Now, watch this. Page three of your Bible, Adam and Eve totally screw all of this up and get banished from the garden. And the doors to this sacred space are shut. But God doesn't give up he still wants to create the sacred space where the divine and, the, and humanity can coexist. So, any guesses to what the solution is uh, in the rest of the story? So think about the Old Testament. What, 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 what's the space 
where God wants to meet, the divine wants to meet with humanity. Do you remember? The tabernacle and the temple. Oh, man. Okay, here we go. Like I said, it's going to start picking up. We're going to start connecting dots. Okay, watch this. In the biblical world, you experience God's presence by going to a temple or to the tabernacle. The temple is where heaven and earth overlap and the two dimensions become one. And the Garden of Eden becomes the prototype or the model to which the later tabernacles and temples will be designed. Okay, here we go. Watch this. Because you're like, I don't know, man. This is kind of stretching. Watch this. Okay. So let me show you this real quick. In Exodus 25, okay, um, Moses is given, and the fun fact, this, I think we're reading it this week in our Bible reading plan. Uh, Moses is given the tabernacle instructions, which is a great bedtime reading, okay? It's super interesting. Here's, here's the gist, okay? These tabernacles, or later the temples, were decorated with fruit trees and flowers and images of angels and all kinds of gold and jewels and so on. They are designed to make you feel as though you're going back to the garden. And at the center of the temple was a place called the Holy of Holies, okay? Kind of show you this, give you a little bit uh, of a little bit of graph, okay? So, uh, in the You've got this outer court, you got, and then the kind of top center piece, okay, uh, is the Holy of Holies. You got it? Now, right in the middle of that, there's this uh, thing that's placed into it. Does anybody remember what that's called, that thing? They, they carried it around in the desert, uh, presence of God, the Ark, the Ark of the Covenant, okay? And the outer space, okay, uh, so here, if we can do this here, this, the outer space is called the courtyard. The space, uh, like I talked about, you have the ark here. This space where the ark is, is called the Holy of Holies. This was the most sacred space, okay? Next to that space, uh, you've got what they call the holy place, which is just like, I guess, one degree less holy. And then out in the courtyard, uh, there are things like, there's there's this altar, okay? And in the holy place, you have... Maybe if you remember this, the candle opera, you've got this uh, like special table for bread and so on, okay? Now, one thing that the authors are going to really highlight, like they get really fixated on, is that in these key places of the temple, that there's, they're decorated with these cherubim or angels, Okay? There's two cherubim that are kind of hovering over the ark. There's little wings there to kind of help you. Uh, there's cherubim woven into uh, this special curtain or veil that separates the Holy of Holies from the holy space, okay? Uh, there's even, there's this kind of like uh, screen door that's leading into the holy place from the courtyard, and you can guess what's woven into that. It's cherubim, angels, okay? Now, it's interesting, right? Why? Why are cherubim guarding this sacred space? Do you remember? We have to go back to the garden. And on page three in the garden, there's this detail about Adam and Eve being exiled from the garden 
And what is stationed there that closes the garden, that keeps Adam and Eve from returning into the garden? Cherubim. They're guarding the space. I'm going to put them right there. There you are, okay? In the garden, okay? Now watch this. So the whole point is the temple is meant to remind you and bring you back to Eden. Even in the building of Solomon's temple, it's all the same image, this three-tiered holy space where you have the land that, that in and of itself is holy because God created it, but then there's this special or sacred space where heaven meets earth that God makes for humans to meet with him, okay? Now, in the Old Testament, in the temple, who is the person responsible for creating and cultivating this sacred space for people to discover, experience, and enjoy the presence of God? The priest. Okay, the priest. We're giving you guys low-hanging fruit here, okay? Um, now watch this. Okay, so think about this. The whole point, okay, the priest, the role, is ultimately this. It's they cultivate and care for or create space for people to experience, discover, and enjoy the beauty of God. Okay, keep going with me, okay? I don't want to lose you. The whole point of the priest in the Old Testament is this symbolic human who goes into the sacred space of the temple as a symbolic return to Eden. Are you tracking with me? Are you still with me? Did I lose, did I lose you? Okay. Um, that the whole point of the priest in the Old Testament is a symbolic human who goes into the sacred space of the temple as a symbolic return to Eden. Now watch this. In Exodus 28, once again, we'll read this this week, there's this whole chapter just about what the priests wear, okay? And it's easy. This is the part where we gloss over, like, oh, my gosh, this is not important. Moving on, okay? But what, we, what we're told is that they're supposed to be shiny and shimmering and clothed in white and gold and jewels. So you have a guy, a glowing human, dressed in a white tunic who goes in and out of Eden on everyone's behalf. That's the point of the temple. Now, you might be asking, Drew, what's the point? I mean, super interesting. I mean, it's cool Israelite culture stuff, and maybe it'll help me out in Bible trivia in the future. But what's the point? Here we go. Buckle in. If you fast forward when Jesus comes onto the scene, and the whole gospel authors, they're all trying to show us how important and how cool Jesus is. And they actually assume that you and I already know this stuff. They just assume that we know. I'll give you a quick example. This is super cool. In Mark chapter 9, which we read this past week in our Bible reading plan, there's this whole story about how Jesus, after a period of six days implication being on the seventh day, okay? Jesus takes three disciples onto a high mountain where they're all alone, and he's transformed in front of them. There are many different paintings to kind of uh, depict this, okay? Now, what's crazy, watch this, is he looks a lot like a high priest, dazzling white clothes, NIV translation says it this way, says that they were more white than anyone in the world could bleach them. Like, I love that detail. 
Matthew and Luke, like they leave that out, but this is like Mark's little flair, okay? What's the narrative doing here? What's the point? This is one of those moments that the biblical authors, like Mark, he's telling a story here where unless you know all the backstory that he's connecting to the Hebrew Bible with Moses there and Elijah and the high mountain, the cloud that represents God's presence in the Old Testament, then you can easily just be like, that's cool. Jesus is awesome. And he glows, like, powerful, cool. Like, but can you see what he's doing in light of the Eden tabernacle setup here. He's portraying Jesus as the ultimate high priest who will open up the way back to Eden on humanity's behalf. So, lo and behold, Mark is very interested in telling us some important details that happened the moment that Jesus dies. We're told as Jesus is dying in Mark 15 that not a cloud but a darkness covers the land. And as Jesus is dying, he says in Aramaic, Eloi, Eloi, which sounds in Aramaic just like Elijah's name. So the people are like, what? what? What's he saying? Is he, is he calling for Elijah here? And with a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last and the curtain The veil of the temple, remember that important veil that separates us from the presence of God? Well, it's torn from top to bottom. What creatures are woven into the fabric of this veil? The cherubim. And what are the cherubim there for? To guard. To guard the sacred space to guard us from the tree of life. So what Mark is doing right here is he is telling you and I that those cherubim posted in Genesis 3.24 are being relieved of their duties. That the way into the holy space is being opened up again. It's like we don't need the cherubim there anymore. That Jesus is opening a way back into Eden. Church, are you tracking with me? Are you you seeing these pieces here that you and I are supposed to get a sense that the way back into the Holy of Holies has opened up, that the way back to Eden, delight, has opened up? Like, how cool is this? Now, Jesus offers another surprise as it pertains to the Holy of Holies, and it's his opening lines of ministry in the Gospel of Mark. Jesus says this, He says the time is now, right now, and the kingdom of God has come near. That phrase, any any Jewish person at that time would have recognized it as a technical term found in the Torah. The come near, draw near is what priests and Levites do when they go into the sacred space. But notice, are people coming nearer to God's kingdom? Are are people drawing near to Eden? Is Is that what Jesus' message is? No. The kingdom of God is coming near to us. This, he, Jesus is inverting the whole idea of the return to Eden. 
that our, our, our try, our attempts to the return of Eden, it's, it's not working, that we keep failing. But what if, what if the life and the power of Eden came near to us? What if it came near to us? And so here is the whole reason why Jesus starts his ministry by going to the sick, the lepers, the people who are paralyzed, the tax collectors, a woman in her ministerial period. Like, are you with me? Like, why these people? Because these are the people who weren't allowed to go into the temple. They could never go in. They were unclean. And so here, the power of Eden is coming after those exact people. Jesus, look at this. This is his role. This is what he came to do. The ultimate high priest came to create and cultivate spaces for people like you and me to discover, to experience, and to enjoy the beauty of God. Are you kidding me? So when the veil is being torn, Mark is inviting us to see that we now have access to the sacred space of Eden. Church, let that sink in. But it's not just that. There's this invitation into something so much more. Not only do we have access to Eden, I want you to think about this. Jesus is no longer here on planet Earth in physical form. We, we don't go to temples we don't live in gardens. Where does the presence of God now rest? 1 Corinthians 3.16 would tell it this way. Don't you know that you, you are God's temple and that the Spirit of God lives in you? So where does the presence of God now rest? In us. We are his temple. But not only that, not only that, but you and I are called to be the new priest of Eden. Delight. First Peter 2, he would remind us this, that you, those of you that know and love Jesus, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood. So what is our role in the world? We get to create and cultivate a space for people to discover, to experience, and to enjoy the beauty of Jesus. This is the role, not only is Eden opened back up to you and I. But we get to be a part of making the world look a little bit different. Because of Jesus, we have the opportunity now to step into Eden and then to create and open up Eden for others. And when we step into the role that God has called for us, our city, our community, our world begins to look more and more like Eden, more and more like heaven, like his kingdom. So let me ask you this. I'm going to give you some space, and I want you just to wrestle today with this question. 
if, if what we just talked about is true, if it really is true, like what, what would change in your life? What, what would be different? Like, if you really do believe that you are the temple of the living God, the Spirit of God lives, dwells, takes up residence inside of you, and then you've been given the calling to be a part of this royal priesthood sent into our world to create and cultivate space so that our world might discover and experience and enjoy this beauty that Jesus offers. What would be different in the life of our community? in your workplace, your neighborhood. Church, do you see what we're getting invited into? And it's on page two of the Bible, and many of us have settled for a really shrunken view of the story and just assume that maybe we just show up on a Sunday and we check a box, we sing some songs, and that's it. And we have given up our divine birthright. So I want you to take 120 seconds and just wrestle with this question. If you could, man, maybe write it down uh, in your journal or your phone, note app, whatever it is. Just take 120 seconds. And if, and if you're not sure what God's speaking to you, like that's okay too. Don't, don't make something up. But just you, you spend some time with Jesus, okay? Thanks so much for listening. We hope that today's message resonated with you. It's our hope that you wouldn't be merely inspired, but that you would actually be transformed by something you heard today. At the Rim Church, we always ask two questions when processing God's word. What is God saying to you? And what are you going to do about it? We encourage you to take a moment, reflect, and then to share with a friend or send us a message. We'd love to hear what God is teaching you and how we can help you take your next step in obedience. Until we meet again, we love you, church.